Good evening, and thank you for joining us today for what's sure to be a fascinating presentation from Dr. McClellan. I'm Charles Gearing, an attorney here at Haynes and Boone in Dallas. The, the council's guest tonight, Dr. Robert McClellan, is an accomplished physician and educator. He is a pillar of the medical community here in Dallas, having exerted a measurable influence as a surgeon, educator, and author for the past 50 years. Dr. McClellan is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and is a distinguished alum of the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. An internship at the University of Kansas was followed by two years of distinguished service with the Air Force in Germany. He completed his residency at, uh, in general surgery at Parkland Memorial Hospital, a place to which he would later return, thus spurring the topic of our conversation this evening. Shortly after completing his education, the good doctor was appointed to the faculty of UT Southwestern Medical Center in 1962, eventually becoming the first faculty member to hold the Alvin Baldwin Jr. Chair in Surgery. While Dr. McClelland has pursued excellence throughout his distinguished career, history came and found him on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. Considering the fact that we are all Meridians, a younger generation of council members and contributors, Dr. McClellan's insight and recollection will be of special value to all of us. Please join me in welcoming Professor Emeritus of Surgery and MD, Dr. Robert McClellan. Thank you very much, Mr. Gearing, for that. Uh, perhaps not quite deserved introduction, but I appreciate it. Um, well, I'm a retired professor, but nevertheless, um, I have to always keep in mind that that's what I am. And I always started lectures by telling people that something I heard once a long time ago is that when you're going to give a talk on something, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you told them. Uh, well, I'm not going to go through all of those three tonight, I promise you. But I hope I can at least hit the high points of our experience. Uh, I won't say my experience because it was the experience of myself and many of my colleagues uh, on that terrible day in 1963 when President Kennedy was shot. And I want to go through first part of my uh, discussion here tonight with what happened as I saw it from my vantage point at Parkland that day. And also two days later, what happened when Oswald was shot and was brought into Parkland. Then after I sort of try to paint a word picture of that as best I can, I will comment from a very inexpert standpoint about how my thoughts and those I think of uh, others that I have worked with about whether there was one shooter or two shooters. So that will be sort of the second part of what I'm going to try to address tonight. And I hope, is this coming through okay to you? Okay. Um, so to start out, on that day about noon, uh, on November the 22nd, I happened to be in the operating room at Parkland Hospital and I was showing a training film to a group of senior surgery residents on how to repair a hiatus hernia. And so we were in the midst of that uh, discussion uh, of that film and I heard a little tap 
on the conference room door where I was and so I went to the door and looked out and saw standing there Dr. Chuck Crenshaw uh, who was one of our senior surgery residents and so he motioned to me he said Dr. Mack would you step out here I have something I need to tell you and I said sure so I went back in shut off the projector came out and he said they've just gotten a call at the emergency room and that they're bringing in President Kennedy because he's been shot during his motorcade downtown and so obviously I said well oh my that that's terrible uh, we knew he was in town uh, but we certainly hadn't in our you know most terrible ideas about this hope that that wouldn't happen although I will say that the political and social atmosphere here in Dallas at that time was pretty bad uh, and there had been a paper uh, one of the two papers that day I can't remember which one had published a four-page picture of President Kennedy accusing him of being a traitor of treason and that was sort of that was you know something that they had paid for and put in the Dallas paper so that was just give you a picture of what a very small but very vocal right-wing minority uh, was doing here in Dallas at that time there had been some trouble about a month before that with Governor Adlai Stevenson who was here on a political trip but enough of that um, Dr. Crenshaw and I when he told me that we got on the elevator and rode down two floors to the emergency room at Parkland which was just below the operating room at that time and uh, as we were riding down I sort of tried to cheer myself and Dr. Crenshaw up by saying well you know we're always getting these horrendous stories uh, about what they're bringing into the emergency room and it turns out it really wasn't that bad and with that the door of the elevator came open and we walked out into a big area that we call the pit which was about 50 feet on each side surrounded by a bunch of patient cubicles and that area which usually had only a few people wandering around in it uh, nurses and residents and a few patients was jammed full of men in business suits shoulder to shoulder and I thought my what is this I couldn't imagine ever having seen anything like that in the emergency room or anywhere and with that that crowd of people spontaneously parted and formed a little corridor down which I could see at the end of the corridor of people uh, Mrs. Kennedy sitting on a folding chair outside of trauma room one off of the side of the emergency room there were two uh, rooms on each side and two rooms on, on one side and two rooms on the other that were emergency operating rooms and so she was sitting outside trauma operating room one well it immediately crossed my mind that at that time of day uh, first of all I knew my chief of surgery Dr. Tom Shires was in Galveston at a medical meeting so he was out of town um, then it occurred to me that my only two colleagues Dr. Malcolm Perry and Dr. Charles Baxter probably at that time of day were out of the hospital somewhere up and down Harry Hines at a hamburger place getting a hamburger to avoid the Parkland food 
And so that put me as being the senior surgeon, quote unquote, on duty at that time in that place for that horrific event. I had to literally force myself to walk down toward Mrs. Kennedy, toward trauma room one. And as I walked down, as I got just to, before I got to the trauma room, uh, Mrs. Nelson, who was a, the nurse who was in charge of the uh, emergency room, the nurses in the emergency room, she was standing between two very large secret service men and letting them know who they should and shouldn't go let pass. And so they motioned me on through, and I went by Mrs. Kennedy, pushed the door open, and was again horrified by the sight that uh, greeted me. And that was uh, President Kennedy lying on his back, propped up a little bit with something underneath his shoulder blades, with his face toward the door and the light shining in his face. And I was also, though, at the same time that I saw that horrific sight, I was gratified to see that Dr. Baxter and Dr. Perry had both just arrived before I did, that they were not out of the hospital. They were there and had heard the summons to come to the emergency room like I had. And so I walked on into the room and Dr. Perry was just at that time placing a drape on the president's neck. Uh, the president's head was covered with blood and as I walked by, Dr. Perry said, Bob, there's a little wound right where I'm pointing in my neck. He, the president had been cut out of his clothing at that time, but he said about where his tie had been, there was a wound. It looked like an entrance wound, Dr. Perry said, in his neck, just above the collarbone and just off the midline of the lower part of his neck. The reason I'm kind of describing that a little bit more thoroughly there's much more to be said about that later, and still is being said about it, as to what happened. And so, uh, having told me that, Dr. Perry leaned across uh, the president, uh, and, and where Dr. Baxter was standing to getting ready to help him explore this wound, uh, and handed me a surgical retractor, and said, would you go and stand at the head of the gurney that the president was lying on, and hold this retractor in the incision we're going to make to explore this wound in his neck. Now some people were, have wondered why were you uh, doing the tracheostomy? That, that's what it's been published as being done for. And they did do a tracheostomy, but what the major concern was that Dr. Perry and Dr. Baxter and I had was that there was injury to the major blood vessels in the neck. Now they had not had time nor the opportunity to really examine anything beyond what they saw there. And I went and stood at the head, and as soon as I got to the head of the gurney, I was able to look down into a huge wound in the back of the president's head, which was about where I placed my hand here, uh, at least five or six inches in diameter of the occipital bone, that is the back part of the skull, had been blown out. And so I asked him, I said, my, have you had a chance to look at this? And they said, no, we really haven't. So what they did is they quickly completed what they were doing. Uh, and that took maybe about, oh, eight to 10 minutes. And at the end of that time, um, as they were completing that 
exploration of the vessels in the neck and putting a tracheostomy tube in to replace the endotracheal tube that had been put into the president's windpipe to help him breathe as soon as he came into the emergency room. Uh, Dr. Kemp Clark, who was our professor of neurosurgery, had come into the room and was standing by the electrocardiographic monitor that had been placed on the president. And he was still having uh, good cardiac activity during all of this exploration and had um, some attempts, although he was being assisted to breathe, to make respiratory movements. But just as that exploration was being completed, uh, Dr. Clark looked at the electrocardiographic monitor and said to Malcolm Perry, he said, Mac, you can stop now, he's gone because he had flatlined on the electrocardiographic monitor. And so with that, everybody sort of immediately stopped what they were doing. By that time, trauma room one was jammed with people from all over, people that had been working in the emergency room and, and others. Uh, I'm not sure who all was there, but the room was packed that we were in uh, doing that work on the president. Uh, the way the crowd left, the gurney got pushed against the wall and Dr. Baxter and I were trapped between the gurney and had to kind of get our, let ourselves be pushed against the wall while the rest of the crowd left the room. So this left us finally in the room by ourselves with the president on the gurney and we were about to push the gurney away and walk around it so we could leave when the door came open to trauma room one and in came a priest, Father Huber, who had been called uh, to administer the last rites to the president. And so Dr. Baxter and I would have had to almost push him aside for us to get out of the room so we just again froze against the wall and stood there while we felt like it was wholly inappropriate for us to be standing there, but we were trapped and so we were caught in that position despite a feeling that we shouldn't be there, but we were there. Um, so I saw I was standing just right by the head of the gurney then when Father Huber anointed the president's head and leaned over and I couldn't say here but just the first words and that was he said, if thou livest, and I couldn't hear anything else. Um, and he completed what he did and was putting everything back into the little kit that he had with him. And the door came open again, and Mrs. Kennedy came in. And she came over to the gurney and stood by the head of the gurney where Father Huber was. <clears throat> and I couldn't hear her because her voice was so low. But from the context of his answer, she obviously asked if he had received last rites. Father Huber said, yes, I've given him conditional absolution. With that, Mrs. Kennedy grimaced. She didn't say anything. But that obviously was not what she wanted to hear. Uh, she stood there for a moment and exchanged a ring from her finger onto the president's finger and then one from his finger onto her finger. And stood there for a moment more, walked down to the foot of the gurney where the president's right foot was sticking out from underneath the sheet. She stood there for a moment, leaned over and kissed his foot, and then walked out of the room. That was the last I saw of her.
but um, I, I can't, um, I can hardly avoid, you know, breaking up when I think about having seen that at the time. Um, anyway, she left, and from now on, what I'm going to describe is not something that that we saw in Trauma Room 1, that I saw in Trauma Room 1, but what was described to me by Dr. Rose, who was our forensic pathologist at Parkland at that time. They had called uh, for a casket to be brought out from the O'Neill Funeral Home, and it arrived about the time that the president was declared dead and was brought into Trauma Room 1, so I'm told, and the president was lifted into his coffin there in trauma room one and the coffin was left on the gurney and they rolled it out of trauma room one and were rolling it down a long corridor uh, to the uh, loading dock at Parkland to the ambulance to go back to uh, Love Field and Air Force One. As they went down the, that long hall um, that little procession included Mrs. Kennedy walking along beside the gurney. This is what Dr. Rose told us right after that. And then in front of the gurney, uh, there were two Secret Service men, one of whom was carrying a submachine gun. And then there were several other people following along behind them as they proceeded down the hall. Dr. Rose stepped out in front of them, held his hand up, and said, I have to tell you that I'm legally required to let you know that any killing or any murder uh, in the state of Texas, the legal requirement is that there would be a post-mortem examination done here. Dr. Rose said, with that, the, um, nobody said anything. But the Secret Service man who was unencumbered with the Thompson submachine gun, he said, walked over to Dr. Rose, put his arm, arm, his hands under Dr. Rose's uh, armpits, lifted him up off the ground like you would a small child, and placed him over against the wall of the hallway that they were in, and shook his finger in his face and then they proceeded on out the hospital and to the ambulance and to Air Force One and back to Washington where that evening he did undergo a post-mortem exam which has caused a lot of comment over the years uh, at the Naval Medical Hospital. So that's what happened on that day at Parkland Hospital. The only thing that we were directly connected with on that day. Then another day went by and nothing happened that Saturday. And then on Sunday, I was at home with my family. My wife and my two small children and I had just returned from church services. And uh, they were upstairs getting ready uh, to go out to lunch together. And so I thought, well, I'll turn the television set on and see what's happening. As I turned the television set on, I could hear the sound before the picture formed. And what they were saying was, he's been shot, he's been shot. And I thought, my, now what? And the picture formed, and there was this picture that I'm sure most everybody has seen reproductions of, that Ruby has just shot Oswald, 
and he's just slumped to the floor there of the police station where he's being transferred from the police jail to the county jail amidst a big crowd of people out there around the uh, the place that he's going to be transferred to or to the to the uh, vehicle that he's going to be transferred to um, so having seen that I walked to the foot of the stairway at my house called up to my wife and I said they've just shot Oswald I've got to go to Parkland and so she called down and she said who is Oswald and I said, Oswald is the man who they say shot President Kennedy. Oh, she said, well, we'll see you later, she said. She was used to seeing, saying that. Uh, and I got in my car and sped out toward Parkland Hospital. And as I was about halfway out there, I looked up and saw coming down Beverly Drive, um, Dr. Shires, my chief, who had returned from Galveston, where he had been two days before, uh, and I saw his car coming toward me. We stopped and communicated across ways to, to one another that what we had just heard. So he turned his car around and we sped out to Parkland. Got to Parkland shortly after Oswald had arrived there. And we parked our cars there and ran into the emergency room. Looked into trauma room two, which is where right across the hall from where the president had been and saw that um, the uh, trauma room two was a beehive of activity, nurses, surgery residents and whatnot, trying to get uh, Oswald prepared and resuscitated for surgery. He was extremely pale and obviously in terrible shape. What had happened to him, he had one of the most uh, grave injuries that you can have and yet survive it for the time that he did. When he saw Ruby coming toward him, as anyone would, in order to try to avoid somebody coming at you with a pistol, he did the best he could to turn himself away from that. And in so doing, he sealed his death warrant. And that if he had kept going straight toward the pistol, the wound would have gone straight through him from the front to the back and caused significant injury, but not fatal injury, almost certainly. But as it was, when he turned, the bullet went rather than straight through it, went transversely across his back and injured both his vena cava and his aorta. Usually that's immediately fatal. But as it was, the blood clot formed and slowed down and essentially stopped the bleeding, oddly enough, until he got out to Parkland and until he was resuscitated enough to get him on the operating table. And we did do that, and Dr. Shires and Dr. Perry and I, uh, and Dr. Ron Jones, who's a surgery resident, uh, explored his injury. Dr. Jones is now the chief of surgery at Baylor Hospital here in town. Um, and Dr. Shires was able to get the injury pretty well exposed and was just about to place aortic clamps on those large vessels. This was after about 25 or 30 minutes from the time the incision was made. And um, then the anesthesiologist said, well, he is arrested. So Dr. Perry and I scrubbed out. Dr. Perry opened his chest. We were not doing closed chest massage at that time. And we massaged his heart for about 
30 minutes and at first thought that we were going to get the cardiac activity to come back but that didn't happen and so he was pronounced dead. Well after that we went out and sat down at the nurse's station just outside that operating room and there uh, in the nurse's station waiting for us to see what had happened was uh, the deputy sheriff, uh, Mr. Lovell, who had been handcuffed to uh, Oswald when he was being transferred. So he told us, he said, you know, as soon as that boy was shot, I got down on all fours over him and put my face down in his, and I said, son, you're hurt real bad. Do you want to tell me anything now? And he said, Oswald opened his eyes real wide looked up at him for a long several seconds as if he were thinking what he wanted to do or not do. And then after those few seconds, he said Oswald closed his eyes and shook his head like that real widely. Uh, and that was the last time he ever opened his eyes, of course. So that was our experience with Oswald that day uh, at Parkland. And so that's basically my own personal and limited direct uh, experience with people like Dr. Rose telling us as well as seeing what happened there. Now I think the next thing that I'm going to address and maybe will uh, engender some questions in your mind, which I hope to leave time for that, and I hope someone will signal me about that, about eating up too much time. Um, basically, what we thought at that time was that we, well, we didn't think anything because initially we didn't have any details of what went on downtown when uh, either uh, President Kennedy or Mr. Oswald, or Oswald were bought in. However, after that, the thing that first triggered uh, the thinking that we had at Parkland about whether there was one shooter or two, and of course the Warren Commission, when we finally came to that conclusion, had finally decided that, well, it was just one shooter, and that was Oswald, who was this kind of loner, kind of mixed up guy who sort of got up one morning and decided that he would become famous and come downtown and shoot the president. That was sort of the, you know, to put a sort of a simple spin on what the Warren Commission decided. And that was done very quickly and with very little ado and very little said about it. Everybody began to wonder, of course, immediately, was that the whole story? Well, one night in oh, about 1970, I came home from Parkland and uh, my wife was watching, watching a, a show by Geraldo Rivera that he had a, a show at night um, sort of just an interview show like they have now. And he had announced that he had obtained a copy of the Zapruder film. So my wife said, oh, come in here quickly. Said they're about to show the uh, video that had, or the video movie that had been made by Mr. Zapruder of the shooting in Dealey Plaza of the president. So I went in and sat down and what they first showed and I would probably assume that virtually everybody in this room has seen uh, the Zapruder film. But as you will maybe recall, um, they showed at first 
the motorcade coming onto Elm Street, turning and slowly going down toward the triple underpass, and they had to slow down at that time. And all of a sudden, the president's both hands go up to his neck. And then shortly after that, he disappears, the motorcade disappears behind a sign out here on uh, the street, the side of the street, and you can't see anything for a few seconds as the motorcade comes by. And then the next thing you see is the motorcade proceeds on down the, toward the triple underpass, and the president still has his hands up to his neck, and Mrs. Kennedy is obviously distressed by what's happened and is leaning over toward the president and just as she does that all of a sudden his head literally explodes and he's thrown violently backward and to the left by the missile that struck him and that's then the crux of some of the argument about whether the Zapruder film has been tampered with or not and uh, that maybe it's been tampered with and so that really there was not a shot from the grassy knoll from behind the picket fence as many people now have come to believe that there was. And what I want to address now in addition to what I've just said about what that film showed of the direction that Mr. Zapruder's film showed the president's body and head going backward and to the left is how do we know that there perhaps was a shot fired from the grassy knoll from behind the picket fence? Well, aside from that film, one of the first things was that a Mr. Ed Hoffman, who I later came to know, uh, was uh, employed at that time at Texas Instruments. And uh, about that time, uh, that the motorcade was going to be approaching Dealey Plaza, Mr. Hoffman happened to be uh, heading toward his dentist in Arlington. He had chipped a tooth uh, during his lunch hour at TI and had asked to be able to go see a dentist in Arlington. And that's where he was on his way to Arlington going down Stemmons Expressway. And uh, he recalled that the uh, President's motorcade was going to be coming that way. So he pulled his car off onto the side of Stimmons out here and parked where he could see. In fact, they actually had pulled him off. Uh, the police were opening Stimmons up to allow the motorcade to proceed down toward the market center where the president was going to deliver a speech at noon that day. And so Mr. Hoffman was placed in a position about six or seven hundred feet behind the picket fence. And it was clear at that time of any trees or vegetation. It's, you couldn't see that way now because there's too much vegetation between Stemmons and that picket fence on the grassy knoll. And Mr. Hoffman stood there and he looked and he saw two men standing behind the picket fence. One was in a business suit, the other man was in what looked like workman's coveralls and was carrying a bag. Uh, as he stood there and watched, he noticed, and Mr. Hoffman had extremely acute vision because Mr. Hoffman was a deaf mute. 
uh, and had extremely sharp vision like many people who are deaf mutes have and that also caused some problems as I will describe here in a minute with his story being a deaf mute. He saw this man in a business suit lift a rifle up that he had been holding on the ground in front of him with a butt on the ground and place the rifle on top of the fence and fire toward the president's motorcade. Of course, he couldn't hear anything, but he saw a puff of smoke when the rifle fired. And as soon as he fired the rifle, he said the man ran toward the man just to his right, who was in the workman's coveralls, tossed the rifle to him over a piece of piping that was in between him and the man, and the man in the coveralls broke the rifle down and put it into this workman's bag that he had and walked off with the rifle, with the incriminating weapon, down these railroad tracks that are out here. And then, uh, right after that, a policeman came up and accosted this man in the business suit who had fired the weapon. Mr. Hoffman, again, couldn't do anything but see what had happened. But apparently, the man who had fired the rifle produced identification to the policeman who looked at it, accepted it, and they walked on off. And the man walked around the end of the fence and disappeared into the crowd. So that was what Mr. Hoffman saw. Nobody believed Mr. Hoffman because they said his story varied too much. Well, as I said, I got to know Mr. Hoffman many, many years later. He unfortunately died only about oh, a year or so ago. Um, and what happened right after that, Mr. Hoffman went to a Thanksgiving family dinner out in, uh, I think, um, in Mesquite. And while he was with the family, he told his father what he had seen. He had already told him that before this dinner. But along with his father, uh, his uncle, who was a Dallas police lieutenant, was there at the dinner. And he told him about it. The police lieutenant, he said, was very distressed and said, you know, Ed, you better keep your mouth shut or you're going to be killed. So um, that was sort of the way that Mr. Hoffman's story was met. And um, about two or three years ago, I met Mr. Hoffman at a uh, dinner meeting of the Lancers group that meets here every November. It's a group of people who are interested in the assassination. And they've been meeting here in Dallas about that time since the early 90s. And they invited me to come down. And I went down and found myself uh, at the Adolphus Hotel where the meeting was. And I walked in. And these two uh, gentlemen walked up to me and identified themselves as um, being the people that I was to have dinner with at the table at the banquet that night. So I walked into the banquet room there at the office hotel, sat down at the table with these two gentlemen who it turns out were high school history teachers from Kansas. And they had um, made the acquaintance of Mr. Hoffman and had studied his story in great detail and had written a book about it called Beyond the Fence Line. And so they had extremely good evidence, I think, 
from checking Mr. Hoffman out uh, that Mr. Hoffman was very truthful in telling them what he had seen and that it was for sure true. I met Mr. Hoffman's wife and his daughter there that night. Uh, all of his, his wife is also a deaf mute, but his uh, daughter, who is a very highly intelligent, uh, nice young lady, uh, was talking to us about it and translating between the Hoffmans and, and me about this story. And then I was talking to the two history teachers who had written this book. So I don't think there's, there's no doubt in, in my mind, and I think in many other people's mind, that Mr. Hoffman actually saw that. And it, another supporting thing about that is that, again, about this window over here, if you look, you will see a railroad uh, switching tower. And there was always someone on duty there. And there was someone on duty there, a uh, Mr. Bowers, um, who saw people behind the fence too, just like Mr. Hoffman did, and saw a weapon being fired. So if I were to quote nothing else but those two, I think you'd have plenty of evidence that there was a shot fired from the grassy knoll. Now, whether there was one fired from the sixth floor of this building or not, I think it may, there may well have been. In fact, we haven't explained this wound in the neck that I mentioned. Uh, there were still a lot of people that think that there might have been another shooter from the front and that this was an entrance wound. However, I think that it's quite possible that someone fired from the sixth floor of this building and that they hit the president high in his back with a missile that came out his neck so that this was actually a, an exit wound rather than an entrance wound. Now that's just frankly my supposition, but I, I think that's not too unreasonable to make that supposition that he was fired upon from two directions. Be that as it may, the shot that killed him came from the picket fence and probably entered his head somewhere about here. We didn't get to examine his body any more carefully than we did with that brief exploration that was done on his neck wound, and then he was removed. But I think that the bullet would have had to come in somewhere about the hairline, gone across the uh, skull and out the back where it blew out uh, the whole back portion of his skull along with the back half of his brain. And while I was standing there, in fact, the right half of his cerebellum uh, oozed out of that hole onto the gurney uh, as I stood there. So I think that's the one that killed him, and that bullet, I'm convinced, came from the grassy knoll, from the picket fence. Um, and then there are other uh, things, like there was a motorcycle uh, policeman, Bobby Hargis, who was riding along the left side of the president's limousine a little bit to the rear and when the president was hit and his head exploded he was splattered with blood and brain material coming from the direction that you would expect if it, the bullet had been fired from the right front from the grassy knoll. Uh, then also Dave uh, Howard and Kenny O'Donnell, two of his close aides, were riding in the limousine behind the president 
and they swear, and this is also, I'll call your attention now, to, in, a, in a recent book, they noted that they are certain that the bullet came from the grassy knoll. And while I'm making that statement, I would report that this book, a book called Legacy of Secrecy, which came out about two years ago, is a really excellent uh, assessment of material that was recently released from the National Archives relating to this whole problem of the assassination. And that's where I quote this uh, statement from uh, um, Dave Howard and Kenny O'Donnell about having seen the bullet being fired from the grassy knoll. Uh, and then finally, um, I would note that I happened to get to know a Mr. Loving, who was one of two um, policemen who was on patrol down there that day. And they also heard, uh, he and his partner, the bullets being fired from the grassy knoll. They immediately ran up behind the grassy knoll, uh, each one with a, with a sawed-off shotgun. And no one was back there by the time they got up to the grassy knoll. But they heard voices coming from some of the railroad gondolas uh, parked on the track out here. And they went and looked inside there and saw that there were three quote-unquote tramps uh, in that gondola. They had them get down out of the car and took them across the Dealey Plaza here to the jail just across the street and turned them over uh, to some sheriff's deputies and a couple of FBI agents who were in the office of the sheriff's uh, sheriff at that time. Uh, they said Mr. Loving, this uh, policeman that I was talking to about this, said they were astonished that the two FBI agents took these three men over to a corner in the, in the office there where they were, questioned them briefly uh, for just a few minutes, and then let them go. And he said he, he was just dumbfounded that they had done that. So there's, there's a whole nexus of things that are mysterious about that whole thing. But I think there's, there's a great deal of evidence that uh, the Warren Commission conclusion that there was just one shooter from this building is wrong. And with that, I think I'll stop and... Uh, See if anybody has any comments or questions. Yes, sir. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, I do. Um, and that's one thing I didn't get a chance to mention is that because of a lot of questions about this, um, some of which, interestingly enough, related to the Watergate investigation and some spinoff from that, and they addressed that in this book, Legacy of Secrecy. Uh, they decided to set up a House Special Select Committee in Congress to look at the whole thing again, like the Warren Commission had done, only to look at it much more closely and more carefully. This investigation went on from 1976 to 1979. And they finally concluded that, no, the Warren Commission was not right, that there was a conspiracy, that there was more than one shooter, but they did, couldn't go any more beyond that description than that. But that's an important conclusion they reached. 
However, their records are sealed. The conclusions of that committee are sealed until 2029, which was 50 years after that uh, investigation was completed in 1979. I, mean, I would like to be there. I won't be, but uh, I would like to be there when that's opened up and we see. So I think we're still, you know, waiting to see if what comes out. I mean, if you look back 150 years ago, uh, and there's been a movie about this recently called The Conspirators, we don't really know who was heading up the conspiracy, which was known to be a conspiracy, that led to the assassination of President Lincoln. I have my own private opinions about who that was. I mean, it's not my private opinion. There's, it's a significant minority that think that it was Edwin Stanton uh, the Secretary of War. In fact, there was a book written by Eisenschimmel back in 1936 uh, making that claim that Edwin Stanton, who was a radical Republican, uh, was dismayed by the fact that Lincoln was indicating that he wanted to have a less draconian reconstruction policy than was ultimately carried out and that Lincoln was going to see that that less draconian policy would be carried out. And that didn't set with the radical Republicans at all. And it led to his death. Just like this book here, JFK and the Unspeakable, about all of the elements in our government, maybe, that had something to do with deciding that JFK was not that he was dangerous, that he was going to lead us into a war. I think this book makes the point that far from it, uh, in the Berlin crisis of 1961 and in the missile crisis of 1962, he kept us from having a nuclear war, which if we had listened to some of our other defense uh, policies at that time rather than him controlling things we might have not been sitting here talking to one another tonight so they make a pretty good case for that in this book JFK and the unspeakable why he died and why it matters thank you